0: Hello and welcome to the RI Science Podcast. In this month's episode, we hear from world-renowned cardiac surgeon Samer Nashef. Samer discusses his new book, The Angina Monologues, Stories of Surgery for Broken Hearts, with journalist Satnam Singera. Together they explore a collection of Samer's stories that are sure to get your heart racing from driving a donor heart up the motorway to his own personal experiences with angina. This talk was recorded from our theatre at the Royal Institution on the 8th of May 2019. If you'd like to get tickets for upcoming talks and live streams, head to our website rigb.org. Please remember to leave this episode a rating and review to let us know what you think and to help more people find the podcast. But for now, over to the theatre.
1: Simon Nashef qualified as a doctor at the University of Bristol in 1980 and is perhaps, maybe I'll get rid of perhaps, and is the most respected cardiac surgeon in Britain. He's also the author of The Naked Surgeon, which looks at what happens in operating theatres and has a new book out called The Angina Monologues, Stories of Surgery for Broken Hearts. I just wondered why, why you've decided to write a second book, because the first one was clearly, is obvious what he was doing, this one yeah. less so.
2: I think... I've always wanted to write this one. And in fact, I had decided to write this one when I first read Henry Marsh. Um, when I read Henry Marsh's first book, Do No Harm, I read it and I thought, oh, this is a great selection of medical stories and, and they're really interesting and quite exciting. But the first thought that immediately hit me was that, okay, this is brain surgery, but gosh, we have far more exciting stories than heart surgery. <laughs> so I thought I will, I'm going to down and write a book. And I already had the stories in my mind and I pretty much knew what I was going to put into it. But there was a nagging feeling that before I did this, which was fun, I really should do the serious thing, which is write the naked surgeon in which the information about risk assessment, quality, how patients can make decisions, how to improve services, how to, how to measure and monitor and treat medicine with the same sort of quality management as we treat industry, I felt that that was important. I knew a lot about it and I should put it out there. So I put this on hold and concentrated on the other one. The other one is more scientific, but I felt that really it was a duty to put it out. This one, it's more fun.
1: I think it's fun to read as well. Um, there's a whole wave of medical books out at the moment. Some mm. of them doing incredibly well.
2: They are.
1: Selling millions of copies. Mm. What do you think is driving this interest in, uh, in medicine suddenly?
2: I guess it's a heady mixture really, isn't it? It's medicine, life, death, humor. What and else do you need? What else do you need? And I think most people, everyone pretty much is interested in health and interested in knowing about, we're all amateur doctors to some extent. I mean, you look at just how much there is about health care and what to do to look after yourself and what to do to look after your heart. It's everywhere. It's in the magazines, it's in the books. Everyone is either a self-doctor or an advisor to others about how to look after health. So we are morbidly obsessed with it, for lack of a better word. And then if you add real stories and drama, there's a lot in there that's very interesting. I mean, what about television? Absolutely full of medical dramas and has been for, for, for decades.
1: Do you watch any of them?
2: No. <laughs> <laughs> I'm afraid I haven't watched Casualty in Hol over Bay 25 City. years. Or Holby oh, City.
1: My favorite bit in the book, I was saying to you earlier, um, is actually not the meat of it, is actually right at the end, where you um, confess to actually having heart problems yourself. Yes. which is fascinating it's a, it's a case of uh, doctor heal thyself and your reaction is fascinating uh, my favourite quote in the book is when you find out that maybe you have angina and you, you write fuck fuckity fuck <laughs> so can you uh, tell us what it was like to as, as Britain's most foremost heart surgeon to suddenly find yourself yes. possibly with a heart problem and how did it happen?
2: that, that is a technical medical term <laughs> It's just the realization that this isn't right. I mean, I don't know about other doctors, but I'm, I'm very good at denial. Um, if there is a health problem, I just pretend it's not there, hope it goes away, and if it goes away, I'm delighted, and if it doesn't go away, I hope and wait some more. <laughs> but, so stay away from doctors if you can, <laughs> they're terrible people. Anyway, so this, what, what happened was I was in the gym, and I, I, on a Monday night, after a long day's operating, I, I used to go to the gym with a colleague, Steve, And we both would get onto cross trainers. And uh, the reason we used cross trainers is, I don't know if any of you go to the gym, they have a screen, a big screen in front. And the screen is very useful for finding out your heart rate and how many calories you've burnt and how many miles you've done, how much work and how many ergs and all that sort of stuff. But it's also really useful to put a cryptic crossword on. (laughs) Because... Aerobic exercise can be mind-numbingly boring. So if you put a cryptic crossword on and concentrate on the crossword, you find that the 20 minutes or 40 minutes or 60 minutes of aerobic exercise passes just like that. So I used to print out two copies of the Monday Rufus Guardian crossword. Rufus has retired now, sadly, but his crosswords were lovely and a little bit easy. And we used to put them on and solve the crossword. And it was great. And one day we were doing that and coming to the end of the 20 minutes. And and he was agitating that we should leave now because the pub that we went to to have burgers and pints um, (laughs) after the gym. And it was getting late. And I thought I wanted to do a little bit more cross training. But I thought maybe I'll, I'll just hammer it for the end. So I hammered it at the end and went really, really fast. And there was this ache. In my chest, and of course I ignored it. But just out of interest, to do a bit of a trial, I slowed down, and it went away. And then I hammered it again; it came back, and then slowed down, and it went away. And I did that one more time, and it came back. And I stopped cross trainer, and it went away. And that is when you really have to face facts. Oh, you didn't. I recognized this. Oh, did you? <laughs> yes. well, is that the
1: point? I think, if I'm right, you then. Went and then I went to burger. the pub
2: and forgot all about it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> But then the following day it happened when I was cycling up the, probably the only hill in Cambridge, as you well know, which is the railway crossing bridge over Mill Road. And I thought, well, that shouldn't really happen. It came back, and then two days after that, it happened climbing one flight of stairs. And I thought, okay, this is serious. This is, this is the build-up to a heart attack, and I'm gonna have to do something.
1: So normally when people come to see you complaining of those symptoms, which I imagine has happened to you thousands of times in your life.
2: I operate on them.
1: You operate on mm-hmm. them. and uh, What did you do?
2: I went to see a cardiologist and I said, uh, Peter, I think I've got angina. And he said, (laughs) okay, I'll see you in clinic this afternoon at three o'clock. And he saw me and he assessed me and he said, yes, you've got it. There's no doubt about it. Here's a pile of tablets and we'll start by organizing your tests.
1: What's it like (coughs) taking medical advice from a colleague?
2: It's, it's not comfortable and also it's really worrying this, you know, because it could have been a lot worse and I could have ended up needing a quadruple bypass or something like that or more complicated stuff and I could have ended up dead. So, yeah.
1: I read your first book and I've seen you perform heart surgery. Yeah. And as you say in The Naked Surgeon, surgeons are quite arrogant people. It takes a lot of arrogance to walk into a room and cut someone's chest open mm. and fiddle about
2: with it mm-hmm.
1: and then sew them up again. Yeah. But what comes across when you talk about this is fear. Yes. Which is, goes against that, it's not yes, confidence.
2: That is very true actually and in, in a way surgeons perform best, in, in my opinion, when there is an element of fear. It's when they become a little bit too confident, too arrogant and no longer scared and cut corners that we end up in trouble.
1: Can you tell people what happened with your, I know it's your own private medical situation,
2: <laughs> but well, I've been, I've, I've been, are you I've been, okay? I have been very open about it, yeah, yeah it's not, that's about. not an issue. Peter said the first thing to do is to have a CT scan, and the reason for a CT scan is that it's non-invasive, and it tells you how bad the problem is, because if it's disease affecting one coronary artery, you can go on and have a stent. But if it's disease affecting several coronary arteries, then you prepare yourself to have something more complicated, like a bypass operation. And. And I got some special treatment because it was my, my own hospital and my own colleagues. And uh, I got a phone call at the weekend from the radiologist who said, What are you doing Monday? And I said, Operating. Well, what else? That's what I do. And she said, Well, we just organized for you to have a CT scan. And I thought, Oh God, this is happening because <laughs> I was using the pub and the burgers to forget all of this. Um, and, and, and she said, That's not a problem. We'll open the department early for you at 7 o'clock. And I thought, that's very nice of you. So I rolled up into the radiology department, which is not a department I visit very often. And then something strange happened, because I walked in, and on the wall of the waiting room, there was an extremely large picture of me. (laughs) And I thought, what on earth is that doing here in the radiology department? I had completely forgotten that I was asked to pose for sort of propaganda stuff for the hospital, um, you know, saying how nice and caring... friendly we are. And and apparently they said that I've got a very trustworthy face. So they made me pose wearing a bow tie, which I stopped wearing years ago, by the way, and a white coat, which I've also stopped wearing years ago. But they made me pose in front of a patient who was actually a member of staff. But we've taken these pictures and I'd forgotten about them and I hadn't seen the product until I actually walked in. So... After that slight moment of surreal coincidence, Deepa, who was the the radiologist, put me on the table for the CT scanner. And she said, well, it's very, very simple. First thing, we push you through the CT scanner. Have any of you had a CT scan? Yeah, you go through something that looks like a front-loading washing machine. And she said, the first run will show if there is any calcium in your coronary arteries. And if there is no calcium, you're fine. And you can forget about it all. And if there is a bit of calcium, then we do the next run, which is to study how wide they are, how narrowed they are, and all that sort of stuff. But for this to work, your pulse rate needs to be below 65 because... You can't really capture the images if your heart's going too fast. And I said, Deepa, you've got nothing to worry about. I'm very fit, I go to the gym, you know. I didn't mention the burgers. Mm -hmm. said, I go to the gym and I'm fit and my resting pulse rate is usually 56 to 58, so not a problem. So she checked my pulse rate and it was 56 and she said, that's great, no problem, we will do the run. So I went in for the first run and uh, I don't know, those of you who've had CTs will know that you can actually see what the CT is showing on the multiple screens in the corner of the room. So I went through the first run and came out of the washing machine and looked up and my heart had lit up like a Christmas tree with all the calcium. I mean, there was calcium everywhere. Throughout the coronary arteries, there was calcium. And then the next thing that happened, Deepak comes in brandishing a very large syringe <laughs> And I said, what's that for? And she said, it's a beta blocker because your heart rate has just gone up to 120. <laughs> because I knew what it meant.
1: So, has the whole experience changed the way you practice
2: in uh, no. any way? No. Not at all. (laughs) I'm probably a little bit more sympathetic when people tell me how awful angina is, especially how it makes them, you know, makes them worry. There's a bit of a feeling of impending doom when you have angina, and I appreciate that it can be pretty unpleasant, even though the pain itself is not a nasty pain. It's not like a paper cut pain. It's just awful. It's a pressure which brings bad news.
1: Well, you're famed for your sympathetic face, And um, someone tweeted me today saying that you treated them and you've been very, very empathetic. So I'm sure it's not an issue for you. But one of the themes in your both books is how maybe people put surgeons on a pedestal too much. Do you think that's an issue?
2: Yes, I think it is an issue. I think perhaps surgeons put themselves on a pedestal, which is even worse. I think we're humans doing a job and we are trained to do that job and we should do it well. And there's nothing particularly special about surgeons that doesn't really apply to anybody else who works in healthcare. But I suppose because we cut people open and sew them up again and fix them on the inside, it acquires a certain glamour that someone who simply prescribes tablets probably will not acquire.
1: Yeah, I guess the lesson of your first book is to ask questions if you're a patient. Yes. Yeah, and you're you're very good about the kind of questions you should ask. Um, One of the things you mention in this book, you talk very generally about your Mm -hmm. discipline, and I was shocked that when you started out, am I right, the death rates were of 10% were common?
2: Yes, they were.
1: What was that like? And what's it like to go from that to what it's like now?
2: Well, I think you've got to bear in mind that the death rates for heart surgery when it began, and heart surgery started relatively recently, it didn't exist until about the mid-1960s. It wasn't possible until the mid-1950s And that's when the heart-lung machine was invented and allowed people to operate on the heart without killing the patient. But before the heart-lung machine was invented, people did try to operate on the heart. And there are stories which would make your hair curl. I mean, they're absolutely terrible. I'm quite uh, squeamish, so please don't. (laughs) um, No, 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 nothing. No no blood, guts and gore. But surgeons always were tempted by the heart because it's a pump. And when something goes wrong with it, it's either a hole where there shouldn't be a hole or no hole where there should be a hole or a narrowing where there shouldn't be a narrowing or a valve that leaks or a valve that's tightly narrowed. I mean, it's plumbing. That's all it is. The heart is a pump and fixing it is plumbing. And yet for thousands of years, surgeons never touched it. We weren't allowed to. One of the quotes that I use in the book is a quote by Bill Roth, who is one of the fathers of modern surgery. He was responsible for all kinds of developments of stomach operations, and there are many operations named after him. But he said that the surgeon who touches the heart deserves to lose the respect of all of his colleagues. There was a taboo. On touching the heart and the reason for that is that you couldn't touch the heart and fix it without killing the patient and then the heart-lung machine was invented and we were able to put the patient on it and therefore isolate the heart and then that opened the doors wide and everything in the heart that used to be unsuccessfully treated with tablets is now very successfully treated with plumbing. And that is really what has changed. So it's only been around for 50 years. It's a very modern specialty. It took off in the late 60s and absolutely ran as a specialty. It's been great. But before that happened, It didn't stop surgeons from trying, and there were certain things that were done. For example, one of the earliest operations that was done with relatively some success is called closed mitral vulvotomy. So there's a valve in the heart called the mitral valve. It's a smack bang in the middle of the heart between the left atrium and the left ventricle. You need to open the heart to get at it. So without a heart-lung machine, you open the heart to get at it, you kill the patient. So what somebody thought might work would be when patients got that valve narrowed by rheumatic heart disease so it became a tiny, tiny slit and the patients were desperately, desperately short of breath and died of heart failure or lung failure because of it, someone thought, well, maybe I could very carefully put my finger through the left atrium and just shove something through it to open it up a bit, to allow the blood to flow again. And it was a surgeon called Bailey who did that in America. And he did it once in one hospital and killed the patient. And then he did it again and killed the patient. And I think a third time, and the same happened. And his hospital banned him from doing this operation again. In fact, I think they banned him from operating there. So he went to another hospital and the same happened again. And there were only two hospitals left in his city. So he arranged to do one case in the morning in one hospital and one case in the afternoon in the other hospital, judging that if the first patient died, he would have already got across town in a taxi and started the second one before they could stop him. Well, the first patient died... The second patient survived. So the fifth
1: patient survived.
2: I think it's something like that. That success actually established that operation, which is still done in parts of the third world by the thousands for patients with rheumatic heart disease. And had he not taken that sort of risk and had his patients not taken that sort of risk, nothing would have happened. So, yeah, the death rate was pretty high at the beginning of this specialty.
1: Like you say, it's a very modern discipline. It's changed so much in your career. Yeah. How does that feel? I mean, do you remember the early days?
2: I'm not that old. <laughs>
1: do you remember the 1860s?
2: <laughs> the heart lung machine was invented same time I was born. Yeah. Heart surgery became a specialty towards the end of the 1960s and the early 70s. And by the 80s, 90s, it was actually quite well established. But the results, the improvement in the results and the drop in mortality has been huge over, I would say, the 90s, noughties and tens. So you talk
1: about some of the things you did early in your career in the book. You were part of a donor team yes. involved in transporting hearts. Yes. Is that right? Yeah. Can you tell us about what that was like and did it change the way you see your discipline?
2: Yeah, it's funny because most people don't think about a heart transplant operation as actually being two operations, but it is. You have to do an operation on the donor, the poor sod who's died to give the heart, and on the recipient. And these things have got to be timed and there has to be communication between two teams and the donor is quite likely to be in another hospital and sometimes quite far away.
1: And have you done that operation? Yes, donor?
2: L- done it a lot. Nowadays, fortunately, I, I gave up heart transplantation and it's much more a young man's game.
1: The passage in the book about the dramas that can unfold when people are transporting yeah. hearts on the motorway. And
2: yes, I have driven into Nottingham at rush hour following a police car with blue lights flashing on the wrong side of a dual carriageway. You can imagine what that was like. I mean, the police driver was having the time of his life. We were absolutely (laughs) terrified. I happened to have a car which had the biggest boot, and therefore it could carry the icebox, and therefore it was by default the transplant donor vehicle. Did the
1: heart get there in time?
2: Yes. And there's a
1: story about <laughs> someone who gets stuck in a traffic jam.
2: This was quite stressful for it's him. Quite this quite is one. Of, what, this. He was one of our trainees, and this happened quite recently. But he was bringing a heart back to Papworth, and they had a flat tyre, yeah. and it was a big van. He got out and hitched a lift, and. I with think a, with a lorry. the first few cars that stopped when he said, I'm a doctor and there is a human heart in that <laughs> box, immediately shut the window and sped <laughs> off really quickly. But a lorry driver eventually carried him and Very unfortunately slowly. there was an accident and the lorry driver got stuck. And um, he had to try to find another way to get himself and the heart to the hospital. He did. I think he was slightly told off by the surgeon for being about 20 minutes late.
1: He waved, it, waved down a police car. Mm. Who barely believed him? Yes,
2: and yeah, then finally it, got the heart. I think he was first. He was nearly arrested, and then, <laughs> <laughs> and then, and then they believed yeah. the story. Yeah.
1: It's quite something. So I guess, yeah. do you think about that mm. a lot? Of
2: all- Well, fortunately, I don't have to do this anymore. It's a great privilege not to have to. But they were pretty stressful times, the, the donor times. I think the worst one was an airplane which actually crashed carrying a donor heart. I think everybody survived and the heart got there, but it must have been quite stressful for them. We often used to use small airplanes hired from private airlines or charter jets. Sometimes they were jets, sometimes they were you know, pat-pat turboprops, yes. and sometimes the communication with the airports and with the organizers and the, and whoever it was who was providing the the transportation wasn't as good as it should be. And I remember one time, uh, normally we used to go to Manchester airport and enter through a sort of side entrance. There would be the little jet, we'd get into it and we'd be flown to our destination. but they wouldn't let us in. Something had gone wrong with the communication and we had to carry our instruments and our boxes and our ice bits and all the stuff that we had to take, a big team of six people, and fight our way through the duty-free shops and the burger joints and the, the airport in order to get to the plane and we struggled to find it. And eventually I found it and I was very chuffed and I said, there it is, look, the pilot's waiting. We got in, carried all our kit, dumped it all and said, let's go. And he turned and said, who the hell are you? <laughs> and it was the plane next door. Oh. <laughs>
1: <laughs> you also, I think people will be very interested in this, tackle some of the common myths about what does and does not cause heart disease. Some of the you tackle some of the things that regularly make headlines, such as Diet Coke. Is it good or bad for you?
2: Things? Neither one nor the other. Salt. They're unproven, That salt is, is bad for you. The best sort of study on which to make decisions is a randomized control trial. That is when you take a group of people and you give them treatment A, and you choose them at random. You take another group and you give them treatment B, and you watch and see what happens in terms of who does better. And that is how medicine is assessed. That's the gold standard by which we assess medicine. And there have been many randomized control trials of advising people to reduce salt, and there is an organization called Cochrane, which is probably the world's most respected expert in what they call meta-analyses, and a meta-analysis is when you take all the best randomized control trials there are and bring them together in order to see what the conclusion of putting them all together actually is. Now they looked at salt, Cochrane, in 2014, so not that long ago, and Without going through all the details, they analyzed advising people to reduce salt in three groups of people. Um, people with normal blood pressure, people with high blood pressure, and people with heart failure, who are the two categories that you worry about most when you advise people to reduce salt. And this is what they found. So for the people with normal blood pressure, if you advise them to reduce salt, they reduce salt. And you could tell that they reduced salt because you can measure the salt in their wee-wee and find out whether they're being more or less sodium, and and therefore you can tell that they have followed the advice. So people had followed the advice and reduced their salt intake. And it made not a blind bit of difference to them in terms of survival or heart events. And if you take the people with high blood pressure, it was exactly the same. It made not a jot of difference whether they reduced salt or not. And these are meta-analyses of randomized controlled trials, the best possible evidence you can have. The only group in whom it did make a difference was patients in heart failure. Now, the patients in heart failure, if you told them to reduce salt and they reduced their salt intake, actually had a higher death rate and a worse outcome. So, on the basis of that, I question, why on earth are we telling people off for adding salt? Now, I'm not saying salt is innocent, and I'm not saying it doesn't cause anything, but what I'm saying is that there is no evidence to go chasing after people, shouting at them to put the salt away. So there you go, put some salt in your dinner
1: tonight. Um, High cholesterol you talk about, right?
2: Cholesterol is a little bit more complicated. Um, You know the plaques in your arteries, the things that cause heart attacks, they contain cholesterol in them. So it's almost natural to imagine, well, if I eat less cholesterol, I will have less cholesterol in the blood and I will have less cholesterol in the plaques and therefore have smaller plaques and live forever, okay? But you can't really make that sort of leap of faith. It doesn't quite follow like this because there are certain aspects of how cholesterol works which are not covered by this simplistic view. The first thing is that most of the cholesterol in our body is actually made by our liver, so it doesn't come from the food that we eat. You can reduce your cholesterol by modifying your food intake and what what sort of stuff you eat. You can reduce it a little bit. But it it doesn't make a huge bit of difference to the amount of cholesterol in the blood. And secondly, we're not entirely sure, not only that cholesterol in the blood is related to cholesterol that you eat, we're not entirely sure that cholesterol in the blood is related to the cholesterol in plaques. So that itself is still a little bit uncertain. Finally, reducing cholesterol across the board may not be proven to modify cardiac disease that much. Having said that, there is some real evidence out there. Like, if you are born with an abnormal tendency to extremely high levels of high blood cholesterol, you get heart disease very, very early. And there are inherited conditions that do that. But these inherited conditions often have other things wrong with the patient other than the cholesterol. So even that is not quite as simple. But the things for which there is evidence are that If you're a high-risk case, if you have lots of heart disease in your family, if you already had angina, if you already had a heart attack, i.e. if you are proven to be at higher risk of coronary disease, then if you take a statin, it will reduce the number of cardiac events you're gonna have, whether you start off with a high cholesterol or not. So even the cholesterol argument is not that certain. So So as
1: someone with angina, Mm What are your personal rules?
2: I eat what the hell I like, (laughs) but I take a statin, because the evidence shows that people like me should be on a statin if they want to reduce their risk of events. Who are people like you? I know that I've got coronary disease because I had that CT scan, you see, so (laughs) I'm in that group. So, a statin, that's all? Uh,
1: Yeah. Otherwise, you drink red wine?
2: Yes, steak, butter, cream. (laughs) It's good advice. But I try not to get fat.
1: I remember you saying to me that the key thing is also very important to have fun
2: in your life. That's a philosophy question. Now yeah. it's not.
1: This <laughs> it also affects your health. Doesn't yeah. it? There's one fascinating bit in the book as well. Also about this bizarre side effect that happens occasionally as a
2: result of surgery
1: where people throw themselves
2: out of windows yes that's not that's not normal actually (laughs) (laughs) it's not just your patients it does it does happen yeah it's it isn't just my patients (laughs) Uh, and it's it's i don't think it's because i'm rude to them most people don't realize this but surgery in general messes with your brain and For most people, they're not as sharp after a general anesthetic or a major operation. Um, It it definitely slows you down. The second thing it can do is cause some psychiatric disturbances. And it can cause all sorts of things. I I, I remember one very prim, elderly lady, very correct, you know, really, really gentle, sweet thing, who, after the heart operation, was climbing into bed with male patients and... (laughs) And the awful thing is that, you know, she remembered it with absolute clarity um, afterwards. And it was just a little bit of confusion, but she remembered what she did and she was mortified. And and we had to reassure her that really is not a bad person. It's our fault, the fault of the operation that did that. Um, but much more common than that is, um, mild delusions of paranoia and you can begin to imagine that the nurses are not really out there to help you but they're trying to kill you and that there's a conspiracy against you and and most of the time it's it's easy to manage that with a little bit of coaxing and if you have to you might need to use some drugs but sometimes it can go to extremes and you try to escape from the people that you think are persecuting you and yes jump out of a window. My patient who jumped out of a window, you'll be relieved to know, did very, very well. And, <laughs> and um, he got fixed, lots of broken bones, but he got fixed and he, he did well. But I was, you know, we, we exchange anecdotes and one of my collaborators is Francois Roque, who's a French surgeon, and I met him at a European meeting soon after this happened. Of course, it was one of the most exciting stories i had that year, so I told him all about it. And he said, uh, yes, that happened to my, my patient as well, a young woman. She jumped out of a window too. And I said to him, did she survive? And he looked at me in a very, very glum way. And he said, you've forgotten already. My, my ward is on the ninth floor. So that wasn't so happy an ending. Anyway, the windows are all bolted now, so nobody can, can, can get out.
1: I often refer to your first book when, whenever in my job questions about NHS funding come up. Because I always think that you wrote one of the most convincing arguments about why the way the NHS is funded and the way we treat it is not right. But you, you come back to that subject here. Yes. In relation to America, you compare it to America. Yeah. Maybe you can tell people about the, the example you use in the book of why American healthcare is maybe not great.
2: American healthcare can be very, very good in that no expense is spared. But there are problems with spending a little bit too much and probably problems in investigating too much and treating too much. One of the issues about American healthcare is that, of course, it's private. And private health care is based on a fee for service. So if the doctor or the hospital provides a service, they get money. And if they don't provide a the service, they don't get money. So you can already see the financial pressures to do rather than not to do. Never an issue in the UK. And, and, and the second thing is that there is fear of litigation. And a lot of litigation comes from doctors having missed something. If you go with a relatively mild symptom, um, your GP will probably fob you off the first time round, whereas your American doctor will probably do about 10 investigations. And that also applies in Europe, in France and Germany to some extent. And doing too much can be very harmful. There are many patients who are harmed by screening, looking for trouble, finding trouble, treating the trouble and causing far more trouble by treating the trouble that you found than by if if you had left it alone. So I illustrate that with some quite poignant stories about things that can happen in America which would never have happened in the UK just because we're sensible and haven't got enough money.
1: Yeah, positive side of not having enough money. So what do you think the NHS needs? Uh, First of all, do you think it's doing
2: well? Not as well as it could do, unfortunately. It's... uh, but the main problem is money. The NHS needs another 50% increase in its funding. 50, five, zero. Yeah. We spend about 8% of our GDP on healthcare. Other countries as, as civilized and as rich as us spend between 12 to 13 in Europe and up to 18, 19 in, in, US in the US. US, you know. We know,
1: but they're, they're yeah. very inefficient yes. and they Well, they money. are
2: inefficient, they waste a lot, and they do an awful lot of unnecessary stuff, but that's what they spend, 18 to 19. I don't think we should spend 18 to 19% of GDP on healthcare because I don't really want to emulate the American model. But, I mean, France spends about 12%, and they have a, an extremely happy healthcare system. Uh, and even they are a bit wasteful because we're... In the UK, I mean, all systems have waste, of course, don't, don't, get, don't get me wrong. Even the NHS can actually sort things out. But by and large, in the UK, we're a very efficient system because there is no middleman, no insurance company, nobody making profits. You know, there is here's a service that you want to deliver. It's paid for by the government and it's delivered to the people. And just the fact that we don't have accountant de- departments and credit card machines in hospital must save a lot of money. We just deliver the service that we need to deliver. But because we only spend about 8% or thereabouts on healthcare, we don't give all the care that we should be giving. And so either the quality suffers or the quantity suffers. We leave some people who could do with treatment untreated. And I've often said there are three things that everybody wants out of healthcare. They want quality and they want quantity and they want it cheap. And you can have two out of three. You can't have the three together. You can have quality and quantity but it will not be cheap. And if you have quality and cheap, you will not be treating everyone. And if you have quantity and cheap, it's not quality.
1: Do you or your family have private health care?
2: No. So you believe in it? Oh, totally believe in it. Yeah. But don't forget, I have access yeah. and I know people. So I would be treated very well when I approach a hospital. I hope so. Well, that's life. It's one of the very few perks yeah. of working in this job. <laughs> there
1: aren't many others, trust me. I'm only gonna ask a few more questions before I open it out. But um, one thing I wanted to ask you, the book ends with a crossword. What's it with you and the crosswords? And what's that crossword about? They're fun. Are they? I can't do them. Right. I haven't got that kind of mind.
2: The reason there's a crossword in the book, you think, why on earth would a medical book contain a crossword? Um, This is because sometimes horrible things happen in a very horrible way and and there is a nasty irony to the complications that people get. So one day I was in outpatients and a man came in and uh, sat down and he was clutching the Guardian crossword, folded. Clearly he'd started it in the waiting room. And I couldn't resist but ask him what he thought of the crossword because I compiled for the Guardian and nice to get a little bit of feedback. (laughs) And he said, uh, oh, it's not one of my favorites, it's all right. So I said, who's your favorite? And he said, oh, Arachne, she's she's really good. And I agreed with him, because Arachne is a great crossword compiler, if any of you do the Guardian crossword. And then uh, after that, uh, he said that he was a very active uh, um, blogger on the crosswords. Now. When you, when you make crosswords, the only way you can find out whether people like them or not, is you look up a couple of blog sites. One of them is called 15 squared, and it's, it's got the tag underneath, never knowingly undersolved. <laughs> <laughs> and so they comment on the crossword, and they say whether the crossword's any good or not. And um, there was one, one, one guy who, blogged regularly and was quite vicious about crosswords and he was well, very demanding. And his name was R.C. Whiting. So I said to him, so which blogger are you? Because I'm familiar with all their, their names. And he just pointed to the top of his notes, what's wrong with you, you know, R.C. Whiting. So that was him. <laughs> so I operated on him and he had a stroke. So he, he turned
1: up as a patient? He was a patient.
2: Oh, he was him. Yeah, yeah. It, was him. it was him. And I operated on him and of all the people, I mean, there is there, there, there's a chapter there that deals with how heart surgery can cause strokes. It's pretty rare. It happens at about 1% to 2%, and more if you're older, less if you're younger, and depending on the kind of operation. But it is one of the risks of heart surgery, strokes, which we're always desperately trying to reduce as much as possible. But it had to happen to him. <coughs> anyway, he fortunately made a very good recovery, and I was feeling really guilty about him having a stroke. So I made a crossword for him and I gave it to him as he was recovering from his stroke. And because of the stroke and because of the combination of having heart surgery and all the trauma he'd he'd been through, he looked at it and said, (laughs) not, not for now, you know, and put it in the cupboard. And it was really gratifying a few months later when it came back filled in completely with shaky handwriting, but all correct. So I thought, as this formed part of the book, I'll put it in the book for people to have a go. So if you want to pit your wits against R.C. Whiting, <laughs> it's Fantastic. in there for you to have a go. But where did
1: your interest come from?
2: When I was a medical student, I edited the Medical Student magazine in Bristol. The reason I edited, nobody else wanted to, and it was, it was dead, nobody, it wasn't being published anymore. So you got two advantages from editing it. You got the fun of writing what the hell you wanted, and also, you got an office. I had an office as a medical student, oh, which was wow. great, because I don't have one now. <laughs>
1: um, I find it one, uh, incredible that at one point of the book, given how many things you do, and how many talents you have, that you say that you suffer from imposter syndrome sometimes, or
2: you did once. That is being honest. Do you know imposter syndrome has actually been described? It's where people who are supposedly in very high positions like, you know, don't know rocket scientists and astronauts and maybe at the push heart surgeons feel unable to appreciate the full benefits of what they have because there is something nagging them at the back of their minds that they are imposters, and I have had that definitely had it and I probably still have it a little bit but not Should as that in much relation as before. To in relation to where books? you are now, no, not in relation to books. No, no I can write. <laughs> but about surgery, I always worry. I always worry that maybe I'm, maybe I'm not the best, maybe there are people who are better, maybe I got here through a fluke. And it's especially true when you meet some surgeons, um, and the majority of surgeons are like that, who have always known that they wanted to be surgeons, believed that they were born to be heart surgeons, that this was their mission, their career, that they're, they're the right person, the right, right man, actually, because most of them are men. Um, right man the right place and they have like a god-given right to be in this position i never had that and i was always struck and and intimidated by the attitudes of these people but then what happened over the years is that i discovered that most of these people actually don't know as much as they claim to know aren't as good as they think they are and probably suffer from a bit of imposter syndrome <laughs> themselves. They're just much better at hiding it. Right. So I don't worry about that. But anyway. well,
1: if even you have, it, have imposter <laughs> syndrome, it's um, very reassuring. Um, right, do we have some
2: questions?
0: Can I ask, what do you think the next big development in the cardiac world?
2: Whether it's going to be the next one, I'm not sure. But the most important one that's going to happen is going to be artificial hearts. Um, as you know, we, we still treat heart failure for the very select few with transplantation. And transplantation has been described perhaps a little bit unkindly, that transplantation as a treatment for heart failure is like the national lottery is a treatment for poverty. Because heart failure is so common and we can only transplant, you know, 100 hearts a year in the UK at most because it's limited by donor organ supply. It requires that a young, a healthy person dies so that an old sick one lives, and it's, it's complicated, it's expensive, it gives you infection problems and rejection problems, so it's never going to be the wide-ranging treatment available for everyone. Now what's amazing is that it's just a pump that size, and it pumps five litres a minute. That's all it does, the heart. Yeah, it's not Valentine cards, not emotion, not love, nothing. That's all it is, it's just a pump. 5 litres a minute. We have not managed to make one yet. We have not managed to make one that works as well, as reliably, as continuously, as powerfully and with no complications as this little thing. But it's surely only a matter of time.
1: Thank you very much for your stories. Um, What made you want to become a cardiac surgeon?
2: What made me want to become a cardiac surgeon was a series of stupid mistakes. (laughs) Look, I I would love to say that I made a careful assessment of the situation and decided this is the job for me, but I basically decided to do medicine because I got pneumonia and was in a snazzy hospital, and I thought this is a cool environment, so I dropped out of engineering and changed to medicine. That was as stupid as that. Second decision, deciding to do surgery, was because I found a bunch of physicians so annoying when I was a heart surgeon that I said that if they annoy me one more time, I'm not going to do medicine anymore, I'm gonna shift to surgery. So that was the decision to go to surgery, and then, I decided to do thoracic surgery, we're getting close now, because the surgeon I worked for was just really, really nice. And I thought, "Oh, thoracic surgery is for me, I really like it, whereas in fact, I probably just really liked him. And then he said to me, well, you can't do thoracics in the UK, thoracic and cardiac are together. You wanna do thoracic, do cardiac as well. So I said, fine, I'll do cardiac, how hard can that be? <laughs> so, a series of misguided decisions made really badly, but I don't regret it, it's been great.
1: When you found out about your difficulties with angina, you're obviously a confident, very successful individual who has
2: direction in his life, but how long did it take for you to deal with your vulnerability? Because that's something that all of us think that we're capable of dealing with everything, but that's the one time in your life that you realise that you're absolutely vulnerable. How long did it take you to deal with that? Because that's the mounting. You're absolutely right, and I think it probably took over a year, maybe a bit longer. First, you come to terms with your mortality in a way that uh, that nothing else can, can achieve. You know, you just know, oh, right, this is probably what I'm going to die of. <laughs> and and the second thing is that despite all the medical treatment I had, I continued to have a little bit of angina for two years afterwards. So there was this constant reminder. But now fortunately it's completely gone.
1: What about robotics?
2: Ah, that's an interesting Robotics one, actually. in surgery. In surgery because you can you can now do operations using robots.
1: You were saying to me earlier that people always say to you, Your hands must be insured. Yeah. But actually you don't care about your hands. No,
2: there's a brain that matters. <laughs> the hands don't don't matter anywhere near as much. There are robots now that allow you to do surgery and in in some ways they're better than hands, okay? Because The first thing is that they can, you know, the human hand can pronate and supinate, turn this far. The robotic hand can go all the way around, okay? And you can control it very precisely. And the vision is fantastic because what they do is you put two stereoscopic scopes into the body and they give you depth of vision as well as sharpness. And most of us, as we get older, have to use these bloody things because (laughs) arm isn't long enough. With with those, you can, you can see everything. You can see everything so, so clearly. The one thing that you cannot do is have feel yet. And experienced surgeons have got, over the years, we acquire an amazing sense of feel, which stops us from making big mistakes and gives us a lot of information that a robot cannot yet do. I guess, in due course, maybe we will get a sense of feel back. But I remember once, Um, helping uh, one of my juniors doing a coronary artery bypass operation. And she had chosen to open the coronary artery just there. And we were each holding with very fine forceps, the fat on either side of the coronary artery. And she took the diamond knife, which is a very sharp knife, to open the coronary artery. And as soon as she touched it, the little bit of transmitted feeling that I felt through my forceps told me that the artery was calcified and I said, stop, we'll open it somewhere else. And then it dawned on me, gosh, years of experience, you get something that a robot can never give you. So I think it'll happen with robots, but at the moment, they take an awful long time and they probably don't do the job any better. When you have a heart transplant
0: from a youngster, say, 20 years of age, and it goes into a body of somebody who's, say, 50 or 60, how do you balance between that strong heart and the arteries and the veins that are, you know, much older and perhaps less flexible? How do you balance that?
2: Oh, it's, it's not really much of a problem because the connections of the heart, um, aorta to aorta, pul- pulmonary artery to pulmonary artery, atrium to atrium, are actually technically quite straightforward. Um, So it's old hearts and um, new hearts and, and old patients do fit together quite well. The big problem is the fact that the recipient then recognizes the heart as foreign. And the minute blood flows into the new heart, the blood is trying to kill the heart. And you have to do things to stop that. The NHS, obviously, as you've said, underfunded and getting worse. Politicians... Now, approaching zero at the moment in terms of uh, public support and what have you. Doctors, surgeons, still extremely high. Have you thought of standing for Parliament?
1: (laughs) Have you ever thought about destroying your life entirely? (laughs) Um, By going into politics? (laughs) I was once
2: asked to stand for the Lib Dems in Huntingdonshire. I wouldn't have stood a cat's chance in hell against John Major. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> and anyway, it's. I, I think it takes a certain uh, level of skill and de- ability to deal with people and perseverance that I don't think I have. I would love to be given the job so I can tell everyone mm. what to do, but I'm not <laughs> sure I would really be I to find to be my way to get
0: it. You mentioned that you think the next big development will be artificial, like fully artificial hearts, mm. um, and that at the moment, uh, patients aren't surviving beyond a year. Uh, not uh, not many, okay. not many. Aside from the complications you mentioned, is it sort of is it just the complications, or are there other things that can't currently be done by artificial hearts? I
2: no, I mean artificial hearts are pumps, and there are. I can tell you what the problems with them are. The first one is that they 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 fracture the blood, of course, because they're not beating in the way that the heart does. But that has largely been improved, um, so it's not a huge problem anymore. They need blood thinners. Um, strong blood thinners because there are artificial surfaces and clots can form in them. You give too much blood thinner, the patient bleeds, so you can get brain hemorrhages. You get too little blood thinner, you get clots and you get strokes. So that's the second problem. The third problem is infection. They need a power line and power line to the outside world. And that's not a good thing. Things that cross the skin and bring power in whatever way, be it mechanical or electrical. It is a port through which infection can come. And then finally, most of us don't really appreciate what this little organ does, but it does actually pump five liters a minute. Five liters is what you've got in you. You've got five liters of blood in you. From head to toe, that's all you've got. And that entire volume goes around your body once a minute, every minute, every hour, every day, every week. It's a huge ask, and machines break. So these are the things that need to be solved, but I, it's not going to be beyond the wit of human ingenuity to solve them.
0: As medicine becomes less invasive, to what extent do you think cardiac surgery can be done less invasively?
2: Well, it all depends on what you mean by invasively. So at the moment, you can do quite a lot of heart operations through small holes, but that doesn't ne- really mean the operation is less invasive. It's, it's being done through a smaller access port, and. The skin cut is smaller, and you might be able to hide it under a bikini top. But the operation is still huge. Um, So I have nothing against um, less invasive surgery. If it's done that way and it's done safely, then that's great. Um, But the most important thing is that the final result for the patient and the heart should be as good as an open operation. A lot of the time it is, sometimes it isn't. Sometimes people pursue this with rather too much zeal the less invasive option. So if you're ever offered an operation by somebody who says, well, I can do this through a keyhole, say, yeah, by all means do it through a keyhole, but do not put my life at risk. The minute it looks a little bit dodgy, <laughs> open me up and make sure it's done properly inside.
1: <laughs> well, Thank you for all the excellent questions. And I was saying to you earlier, mm-hmm. you always get one question, which actually is not a question, but is a long statement. Didn't get one of those today.
2: <laughs> um,
1: finally, I mean, what are your plans? I mean, are there going to be more books?
2: More crosswords. (laughs) Yes, there probably will be more books. Is it going to be a book of of crosswords, perhaps? Um, Oh, I don't know about that. No, no. no, But I've got a few other things I'd like to write about.
1: Well, thank you. It's been really an honour to meet you again. You're one of my favourite ever interviewees. And again, it's been fascinating to see you again. And thank you to the audience. Thank you. Thank you.
0: That's all for this month. Thank you for listening. Please leave us a rating and review to let us know what you think and to help more people find the podcast. If you're ready for more science, head over to rigb.org to book tickets for all our upcoming talks and live streams from more amazing speakers.